So the way that I think about this is the market right now is it's it's still pretty new in terms of of adoption here. And so there, there's kind of two approaches, right? There's there's the carrot and the stick approach. I think um, in in this case, we want uh, as wide of an adoption as possible across you know all of our sponsors, all of our companies, not only in Europe as we mentioned, but also in the U.S. and, and APAC. And I think by by taking this approach where it's it's kind of more of the carrot and providing an, a, a little bit of a, an incentive to to borrowers and to the the sponsors, I think we're going to get better adoption, and I think that will ultimately kind of lead us to drive the market forward and over time we'll, we'll be able to, to have a long-term impact that was aaron gillespie a managing director in bearings global private finance business and this is streaming income a podcast from bearings i'm your host greg campion and i'd like to welcome you to episode number 11 the final episode of season four of Streaming Income. All season long, we have been diving deep into the factors shaping today's markets across asset classes like EM debt, high yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Today's episode may be the last of this season, but don't worry, we will be back at the end of August. So if you want to be the first to know when our new episodes are out, make sure you follow us by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. My guest today is Aaron Gillespie, a managing director in Bearings Global Private Finance Business. Aaron is a portfolio manager focused on middle market direct lending and is also deeply involved in the implementation of ESG best practices in Bearings private debt business. In the conversation, we covered all things ESG and private credit. Specifically, we discussed some of the nuances involved in analyzing and applying ESG metrics in the private credit market and how that's similar and different than in public markets. We also talked about some of the very latest innovations that are happening in the market today to encourage and to incentivize positive change on the ESG front. And actually, Aaron gave some really interesting examples that he and the Bearings team have been directly involved in. Finally, I asked Aaron to look into his crystal ball to predict what might be on the horizon when it comes to the next advancements of ESG in private asset classes. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Aaron Gillespie. All right, Aaron Gillespie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Greg. Excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. First time on the show. Uh, We've done, gosh, probably like 20 private credit episodes at this stage, but we haven't had the pleasure of having you on. Um, So I'm excited about that. So maybe um, just to start out, would you mind telling our listeners just a little bit about your role at Bearings? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And and you, uh, you, you do such a good job with these. So I, I really am excited to be on it. But um, so I'm a, a portfolio manager uh, within our global private finance business. And uh, in that role, uh, I look after our global private loan funds, uh, as well as a number of our kind of globally and, and regionally focused uh, separately managed accounts that are investing up and down the capital structure. 
Um, the, I also kind of sit on our, our global private finance uh, ESG committee, as well as our, our firm-wide uh, ESG investment integration working group. Yeah, that's great. And um, it sounds like we have the right person for the conversation to talk about private credit and and ESG. Um, maybe before we get into some of the nuances of ESG, if our listeners are, are new here, would you mind just uh, kind of reminding us, you know, when we at Bearings are talking about private credit, what, what do we actually mean? Great question. And it's it's one that, that we talk about with with investors a lot because there are so many different managers out there that that define private credit differently. Um, but in its its simplest terms and, and as far as we go, we're we're basically providing debt capital to uh, privately owned middle market companies. Uh, we're providing capital in support of buyouts and other types of of MA transactions. Um, and so for us, you know, the, the bulk of what we do is we're investing in in kind of the senior secured part of the capital structure. But we do, as I mentioned earlier, we we do invest in in some junior capital. So kind of primarily think about think of it as, as second lien and mezzanine to performing companies as well. Um, and then we also do this. We're you know at Bearings, we're a global business and a global platform, and so we're investing uh, across the globe. Uh, we've got within private debt, we've got teams in in North America, in Europe, and Asia Pacific, uh, and we're we're really trying to just generate opportunities across those markets to to create you know diversified portfolios for our clients. Thank you for that uh, overview. And uh, yeah, our listeners will be familiar with with some of your colleagues who are running the day-to-day uh, of some of those businesses that you just mentioned, uh, whether it's Adam Wheeler sitting in London or Ian Fowler here in the States or um, or the likes of John Bach, uh, you know, focused on BDC efforts, uh, et cetera. So it's really um, a broad and, uh, and deep effort um, across the board. Um, okay, so let's talk about ESG, and this is a topic that has continued to grow in prominence and in focus. And you know, the content of this very podcast is probably as indicative of this trend as anything else, as we're discussing ESG on pretty much every episode uh, these days. But I'd like to get into some of the nuance of applying ESG analysis specifically in private credit markets. So. Maybe let's start there. Um, I'm hoping that you can take me through how you're thinking about uh, ESG broadly, and then it would be great to hear, um, you know, for private credit specifically, what's similar to other asset classes when you think about analyzing and applying uh, ESG metrics, and maybe what's different. You're exactly right. It's um. I, I don't go through a single meeting anymore that we're not talking about ESG, and it's it's clearly, you know, it's something that's that's really important today. But I think you know, let, let's not forget that it's 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 been important for a long time. Um, you know, I think f- for us at Bearings, I mean, we we clearly believe that incorporating environmental and social and governance factors into our investment process is just part of kind of good solid fundamental credit analysis. So I think that's. That's kind of clearly consistent across all the, the investment teams and the the asset classes here at Bearings. Um, you know, I think just kind of putting a, a, a lens on it, Mass Mutual, who is our, our parent company and owner, has really driven a lot of our our overall kind of investment philosophy over the years. I mean, we we tend to be uh, far more focused as a as a principal investor as opposed to maybe just an asset manager that, that's ramping assets. And so I think it is really part of kind of just our fundamental process. You know, one of the things that we do is to have 
a steering committee at the firm level, as well as kind of working groups. And I think those just at the firm level help us to, to drive consistency in our approach across each of the different teams. Um, so, so maybe those are kind of some of the similarities, but I think, you know, when we start to dig into to private credit specifically, you know, again, I think it's something that's been uh, fully integrated into our process for a long time and really even before we started to, to kind of uh, call ESG a, a thing. Um, when we, you know, back in kind of 2014, uh, Bearings as a firm signed on to the UNPRI, and then uh, later that year and into 2015 is when we kind of formalized our our uh, investment integration uh, of ESG factors into our process. And so, you know, that included things like incorporating an ESG section in our memos, where our deal teams are able to to kind of flag the the key ESG, you know, risks and opportunities. It's applying scoring to ESG scores to each of our borrowers. Uh, it's it's tracking you know progress with borrowers you know in terms of how we we've engaged with sponsors and management teams, and then ultimately it's it's you know how do we how do we kind of provide and report information back to the, the all the interested stakeholders, and so we did. We started to provide a, an ESG report uh, on an annual basis back in 2015, and have done that since. Interesting. And, and and are there any more kind of, um, you know, differences that, that, you know, you look at uh, the difference between, you know, applying this uh, in public markets versus private markets? Are there any other kind of big differences that kind of jump out to you? Yeah. So I think the biggest difference for us is uh, we are investing in a an illiquid asset class. So we, you know, unlike public markets uh, where you may have the ability to to trade in and out of of uh, loans or assets uh, as a result of kind of changing uh, credit risks or quality, we don't have that luxury. And so, what it what it means is we have to get it right on the front end, right? Mm-hmm. And so the the bar becomes pretty high for us. And so, you know, that that's not only in terms of just general kind of credit risks, but also, you know, especially when you think about ESG factors uh, and and how we need to to kind of really consider those on the front end and make sure that we're aligned with with the the private equity sponsors and the management team as well. I think one of the the areas that that we have focused on historically, and it's it's probably, you know, to be fair, it's one of the, the easier ways to incorporate ESG into a process is just kind of through negative screens. Um, so there's there's obviously some sectors, uh, some industries that that we just avoid full stop, and those would be you know companies that are manufacturing, uh, distributing, you know, uh, controversial weapons, uh, and and for us with you know financing middle market businesses, it tends to be companies that are maybe providing some sort of component that's going into the the, the weapon systems. So <clears throat> that's certainly an area that we just avoid full stop. I think there's other sectors uh, and, and and companies that are maybe you know providing alcohol or tobacco, uh, fossil fuels that that we really are, are avoiding and we don't don't put in our portfolios at all. It's interesting to me that you know how that sort of combines or almost goes like hand in hand in some of the sectors that your team tends to avoid. Uh, you know, even just outside of ESG risk, but more for other risks like cyclical uh, risks, et cetera. So I know we've talked, you know, many times to Ian Fowler and others about, you know, why it doesn't make sense uh, in, in our team's view, I guess, to, you know, to, to invest in, you know, our retail or restaurant uh, sectors, you know, just given the, the cyclicality of some of those. So it's kind of interesting for me to think about almost like the intersection of, 
some of those um, sectors that you just mentioned uh, that you would avoid because of, you know, for, for kind of negative screening ESG purposes, kind of intersecting with, um, with some of the sectors that we, that we avoid just for other, you know, more cyclical reasons. Yeah, I think that, that's a great point. I mean, uh, kind of like we said, they, 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 they can go hand in hand. Um, I think there's there's also just you know when you think about credit risk uh, and then kind of dive further into ESG risk within that, it can be pretty nuanced. You know, there's uh, especially on the on the social side, or you know maybe there's some political pressure that's that's maybe less obvious and could impact a impact a company uh, over the course of a, a three or five year hold. Yeah, you know, your point around the hold periods, I think, is a really good one. And I think that is one of the, you know, distinctions, certainly, between this asset class and maybe some of the public markets. You know, this is a strategy uh, where you're necessarily a long-term holder for the points that you just just brought up. So, your your horizon is much longer. So, I like the way you're thinking about it in terms of, you know, you pretty much kind of have to get it right, um, right from the get-go. Um, you know, one of the, um, you know, words that you've mentioned a couple of times here is sponsor. So, I just want to talk a little bit about the the role of a private equity sponsor because that's another difference between public and private markets. And I know that you and the team, uh, you know, really partner extensively with private equity sponsors across the world, really. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, what does that relationship look like, especially when it comes to ESG? Yeah, you're you're right again. I mean, the vast majority of our business, and I would I would say it's probably 99% plus of our business is financing sponsor-backed companies. And so, when you kind of take take a step back and think about uh, our role in this process, we are not the we're not the equity holder and and the owner that kind of controls the the business and the the board and the direction that it's going to head. And so, that alignment. Of of interest between us and that sponsor who's going to control that is is critical. You know, I think it's um it's something that we we vet pretty heavily on the front end. Uh, you know, I think fortunately, you know, Bearings has a, a long history of of investing in the asset class. We've been doing this for 25, 30 years. And so have a long track record of of investing alongside literally hundreds of sponsors and kind of know know what their their strategy is and what their approach to, to ESG is. And so we we can kind of determine if, you know, how we're aligned or or how, you know, in some cases we're not, uh, which I think is is really important. And how does that actually work? Like what are the mechanics of that? Um, you know, are they partnering with you in terms of due diligencing companies in these areas or like what does that actually look like day to day? So typically what will happen is a is a sponsor when they're buying a business, they're gonna engage third parties that are gonna complete due diligence. And in a lot of cases, there will be, you know, an environmental study done and and you know, even more recently, you know, there have been specific ESG studies that are completed. And so I think those are good opportunities for us to to digest that information alongside the sponsor and have, you know, real conversations with them on, you know. Maybe some of the the opportunities that that they can work on throughout their hold period, and and make sure that we're aligned on that. But I think there's you know there's other other areas that kind of, and avenues that we can kind of go down. You know, typically for for our market, what we see is a, a sponsor will will buy a business as a kind of a, a platform company, and then one of the ways that they you know kind of make their return is they are buying. Um, Kind of add-on businesses throughout their hold period, right? To to kind of generate some some return for them, and and what we want to make sure that we do 
is stay aligned in terms of how they grow that business from an inorganic basis and the companies that they're they're acquiring and, and growing. So, you know, oftentimes we will put specific parameters in our loan agreements that are going to have restrictions around like what those uh, permitted acquisitions look like so that we don't wake up two years from now uh, in in the deal, uh, again, that we can't sell out of and the company looks materially different mm-hmm. uh, than it did you know, when we, when we kind of came in and, you know, we don't have the ability to do anything about it. So I think, I think that's something that's pretty key for us. And again, back to the point around alignment, if we ask for that and a sponsor, you know, kind of pushes back or, or doesn't have a good reason not to include it, then I think that's a, you know, kind of a red flag for us and something that we would, you know, potentially struggle with. So what would be, you know, some kind of a restriction that you might want put in place? Would it be avoiding a sector like some of the sectors you mentioned earlier? Would that be, you know, one of them? Yeah, exactly. It's avoiding areas that, you know, may make the the company more risky just from a, a you know, broad credit perspective, but mm-hmm. also, yeah, I mean, if, it, if it's a, a business that's a, let's just say it's a, a um, manufacturer that manufactures some sort of component that goes into aerospace systems, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe currently they're only providing components that are going into to commercial air fleets. Well, what we don't want to do is wake up three years from now and 50% of their revenue is now components that are going into uh, weapon systems, right? Mm-hmm. And so we would we would maybe put some restrictions around that and, and kind of limit the, the end markets that they can sell into. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting to hear. We, we've we talked about ESG on this podcast so much across so many different asset classes. So we've uh, discussed high yield, emerging market debt, public equities, et cetera, et cetera. So um, in some of these public market asset classes specifically, we kind of talk again and again with the portfolio managers about some key ideas. Um, one idea is this idea of engagement and you know, generally speaking, how uh, the firm has favored engagement over exclusion. Um, another is this idea of sort of incentivizing uh, companies to make positive changes in their business. And, and then kind of almost the idea of, um, um, you know, really valuing sort of the direction of change, right? So, you know, we've even had this discussion uh, around, you know, emerging market sovereign debt, where we've talked with that team about, Uh, You know, they may think a certain emerging market country is in a tough spot today from from an ESG consideration perspective, Uh, but but actually they're making a lot of positive changes um, to move in the right direction. So if you think about some of those concepts, right, engagement, kind of incentivizing the right behaviors, I'm curious, is that sort of the approach that we're taking in private credit or is it necessarily different because of the nature of the asset class? Yeah, it, it it is the approach. I mean, we we have been having conversations about ESG and sustainability topics with private equity sponsors and management teams for for years now, and I think it's it's one of those things that the market recognizes. We we've we've got to focus on it, and and we've got to get all stakeholders behind it. But but one of the challenges that we're having is just you know when you think about the the businesses that we're financing, you know, they're just slightly smaller as we, you know, we kind of hit on it earlier. They're slightly smaller than 
than uh, you know companies that have listed public equities, right? And so, you know, when you kind of think about it, our the companies that we're financing tend to have twenty to to seventy five million dollars of of EBITDA, which you know it isn't small by any means, but it's just it's a lot smaller, you know, in comparison. And so mm-hmm. when you've got businesses that have fifty to five hundred employees, there's just there tends to be less resources that are that are kind of dedicated to ESG and sustainability. And therefore, as a result, there's just been less information uh, available to us and, and less focus on it from, from sponsors and management teams. So I think your point around how has, has Bearings been approaching that, and I think it's, it's consistent across the firm, um, but one of the things that we've been doing within private finance uh, and private, you know, private credit is to to offer uh, what we're calling ESG forward loans, uh, or, or you know maybe call them a sustainability linked loan, to to our our sponsors and and you know middle market companies, and and basically all that is is we're including uh, some some ESG or sustainability provisions within the loan agreement that if the company meets you know a certain number of those criteria, then they get a slight reduction in their borrowing cost. So it's not it's not going to be you know overly uh, impactful to an investor return. I mean we're, we're talking about you know five to ten basis points of of margin reduction in in an asset class. It's going to yield somewhere in the eight percent range. So it's not a material impact to to our investors. But at the same time, you know at the individual company level, when you think about five or ten basis points of of reduction in their borrowing cost over the course of a again a three to five year period of time. It actually can be a, a pretty meaningful economic incentive, and and kind of point them in in the right direction to to kind of make a, a positive impact. Yeah, that that's really interesting, and that is that exactly hits that point of kind of um, providing incentives. Um, so, have has the team actually structured deals like this uh, already? And and if so, I'm curious, kind of what jurisdiction those were in. We have. We've uh, we've probably completed a handful of deals now that that include uh, provisions like this, and you know it, it's uh, it's typically you know call it five uh, provisions that a company may meet, and they they tend to be aspirational in nature. So it's things that the company is not doing today, but over the course of a you know three to five year period can can do and and kind of again see some real benefit from. It's things like. You know, put a sustainability officer in the company to kind of focus on ESG topics. Mm. It's make um, make ESG a formal topic that gets covered in their board meetings. It's um, you know improve reporting. So that may be like an annual ESG report that they send to the you know the sponsor and us as the debt provider and you know any other stakeholders in the business but it also may be kind of more specific like carbon reporting and stuff like that mm. um and so I, I think um what your your question around kind of the jurisdictions we kind of rolled this out in Europe initially mm-hmm. um we we do think that uh, we're getting some pretty good buy-in uh, across the globe now and and so hope to 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 kind of roll that out further going forward Oh, okay. Yeah, that that was actually going to be my next question. Is is uh, you, you know, I guess it's no surprise that you know, Europe's been ahead of the curve pretty much on all things ESG. So uh, I was curious, just with the team's presence in the U.S., Canada, developed Asia Pack, um, you know how that how that might be kind of rolled out. So do you think it would be similar uh, kind of structured uh, transactions potentially across the globe? 
I do think so. Um, Europe is has definitely been ahead of us uh, in North America on this. I think. I think. I don't. I want to be fair to our our Aussie clients. Uh, I think sure, Australia sure. Is, has has also been kind of more on the forefront. But yep. we. Um. I, I do think uh, we're going to see some some adoption uh, on a more global basis. And you know, one of the things that we've been doing is to to kind of form a a, a working group that is. You know, it includes folks from our uh, our investment team, our deal teams that are actually you know interfacing with with the private equity sponsors and, and companies. It's including this private finance ESG committee, so the committee that I sit on. It's uh, including folks from our bearings uh, firm firm level sustainability team, but we've also engaged kind of an expert third party outside counsel to help us with this. And the goal here is to to kind of pull together a library of of you know call it twenty five thirty provisions that then the deal teams can go and and kind of pick and choose right in terms of what they're going to offer to the the sponsor and the borrower in a specific deal, and I think those will look like you know some of them are going to be pretty generic right and that they can apply to every single opportunity but then there's going to be others that are going to be be more specific to the the company that we're actually financing and and the goal here again is to to not only include these these sorts of uh, provisions uh, in deals in Europe but also just given you know how much more momentum there is behind this to to put these provisions in in deals across North America, Europe, and Asia Pacific as well. Mm, that's interesting. I, that that concept of kind of almost building like a library of provisions. So you you mentioned some of them. Maybe mention that some of them, at least for the deals that the team's done so far, have been uh, you know maybe aspirational in some cases. So whether it's the you know installing a ESG or sustainability officer, or you know doing some more advanced reporting or uh, carbon reporting, et cetera. What would be some other examples that would be in that list of uh, 25? Yeah. I mean, I think some of them are, are going to potentially be more focused on social issues, you know, maybe board diversity, maybe mm-hmm. pay gap stuff. But I think there's, there's also, you know, businesses that are just by nature of what they're doing, they may have uh, more impact on the environment. And so, you know, maybe looking at their carbon emissions and and trying to reduce that over time. Uh, and, and the first step may be just to measure it, right? And to get a, an emissions report so we can kind of get a baseline and then improve that information on a, on a go-forward basis. And would that be kind of a combination of negative screens and incentives? So the way that I think about this is the market right now is it's, it's still pretty new in terms of, of adoption here. And so there, there's kind of two approaches, right? There's there's the carrot and the stick approach. Mm. I think um, in in this case, what we want to do is we want to we want uh, as wide of an adoption as possible across you know all of our sponsors, all of our companies, not only in Europe as we mentioned, but also in the U.S. and, and APAC. And I think by by taking this approach where it's it's kind of more of the carrot and yep. providing an, a, a little bit of a, an incentive to to borrowers and to the the sponsors, I think we're going to get better adoption. And I think that will ultimately kind of lead us to drive the market forward. And over time, we'll we'll be able to to have a long-term impact. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that that is actually quite similar to, I think, 
you know, some of the conversations I've had with, you know, folks in, uh, in our teams on, you know, asset classes, like high yield, emerging market debt, et cetera, where, um, that idea of incentivizing and, and helping to bring companies and in some cases sovereigns kind of along this path or this journey, um, does make a lot of sense, I think, philosophically. Yep. All right, Aaron. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time here. Um, but I did want to just uh, kind of ask you, you know, what's next? Um, you know, we've got this space which has developed pretty darn quickly. I know, I know you said that you and the team have been really focused on this since kind of 14, 15. But I mean, I think there's no denying that it, things have just really accelerated the last probably two, three years um, in particular. Um, and it's really interesting and great to see actually all this activity around, you know, okay, deals are actually being done here that are linked to, uh, sustainability metrics. And there's actually, you know, real monetary incentives for these companies to make positive change. That's pretty cool to see. Um, but so I guess the question for you to just kind of finish it up here is, you know, what's next? Like, where do we go from here in this space? Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, it's, this is this is here to stay. Uh, again, it's this is, incorporating ESG into an investment process is just you know part of good credit underwriting, uh, and and so I, I don't think it's going anywhere. It's not a it's not a uh, flavor of the month at all. Uh, and so I think for us, you know, what we see is just the middle market's going to continue to evolve, and we want to stay on the forefront of that. You know, I think it's it's clearly um, you know providing those incentives uh, so that that all stakeholders are kind of interested in in making improvements uh, and and providing kind of more focus on it. And I think you know ultimately what will happen is you know where where we can kind of use our influence to encourage uh, sponsors and borrowers within the middle market to to provide better data to be better you know citizens and stewards of of our capital. You know, I think ultimately that creates a, a you know a more sustainable uh, kind of path for for long term investment performance. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, again, just you know, given the kind of buy and hold nature of this asset class, and you know, we're generally talking about pretty long term horizons when we're talking about private credit. Um, I think everything you just said, you know, makes a lot of sense in that light. So. Uh, well, this has been uh, educational for me. I hope for our listeners as well. Um, again, I think it's great to see a lot of this activity uh, going on and really coming to fruition. And so I appreciate, you know, I know that you, you're you kind of in the weeds on this every day and uh, it feels like you're really at the forefront in terms of some of these new uh, innovations and the way that deals are being structured. So I appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your day today to join me and to to share some of these insights. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks. Thanks for listening to episode number 11 of season four of Streaming Income. And in fact, thank you for listening all season long. It's been a fun season. I know that I have personally learned a tremendous amount about asset classes ranging from private credit to real estate to CLOs to emerging markets debt and many more. As I mentioned up front, we will be back in late August. So make sure you're following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you want to be the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.